Hi, I'm John Chambers, partner in Corporate Innovation at IE and host of The Corporate Innovator, a podcast that gives you direct access to visionary corporate leaders, makers and advisors to level up your innovation game. The Corporate Innovator is produced by IE, Australia's largest independent innovation company. We work with corporate partners to develop, design and deliver transformative ideas to market. Learn more at ie.com.au. Our guest today was a pivotal change maker at Australia Post, who's now EGM of Digital and Technology at Latitude Financial Services in Melbourne. Andrew's a guy I've always found to be pushing the boundaries of innovation and culture, and you'll hear that in this episode. He's built some incredible products in his time and has recently launched Latitude Pay in his latest role along with his team. We'll talk all about that, along with the perils of short-termism, the beauty of hindsight, the power of people, as well as the pain of a product kill. That and more... Let's dive in. So, Andrew, thank you for making the time. You've had a fascinating career. Many people come at this domain we're talking about, innovation, digital change, from one of many different angles. You've kind of had them all. You've had a strong technology background, a huge change and transformation background, and a digital product and innovation background. You've kind of had them all, which is probably why you get such great jobs and do such great work. I'd love to hear a little bit about your history, your career, and how you picked up all these skills. Look, I don't know that I think that I'm anything special. I've been really lucky across my career, having had an opportunity to be able to explore different types of change in many, many different industries. I guess as a kid, I was brought up to be curious, to always question why things work the way in which they do. And if you could see an opportunity to help to make it better, then maybe that's what you should do. And that's kind of what what's always been instilled in me. And and as I've gone through different jobs, from whether they're small businesses, then going through consulting for 10 to 12 years, where I did a lot of transformation work and getting dropped into programs that helped to put them right and move them forward in the way in which they needed to go. And then in my corporate roles, helping to lead, you know, technology, digital, customer, and ultimately, you know, the type of corporate innovation-led change. You know, what, what I've learned through all that time is to have humility and it's about being great to be able to listen to people and bring out their talents and, and be able to help them to be able to do and achieve what I guess I've always been able to see and believe that they could do. And I've always continued to be curious. I've continued to want to be able to help an organisation to be better. I've always asked why it does the way in which it does and I kind of delight in being able to challenge the status quo. So just off the cuff, Finding these great people that you found to help you drive this change, do you have a killer interview question or a killer thing you look for? I love the notion that when you're going on a big change, you really try and create a work family. People who are able to create this deep connection with one another where you truly trust and understand each other's complementary capabilities, but it's the diversity of all that creates something very special and very powerful when you're going and driving change. And I'm also a believer that people love hard work if they're doing work that they love. And so as a result, I talk to people, you know, I get to understand them through the interview process. I ask them, what is the perfect type of job for you? And what I try and do is, you know, I don't necessarily come with a prescriptive role and says, you're going to do this. Sometimes it's directionally right. But try and help people to achieve exactly what they love doing and inside of their roles. And I ask them, you know, I ask them about their own leadership styles. I ask them what their team think of their leadership style. I ask them what annoys them. I ask them what they think is great about what they do. I try and get into the psyche of how an individual change leader thinks because ultimately it's when you're under pressure and you're leading teams, that's what makes a difference. Let's dig 
a bit into your time at Post, such a massive role at a really important time for that company, transforming one of our most iconic brands. How do you look back on that time and, and how did you get such big things like digital ID and trust check and some of the things we're still seeing emerge from your tenure there? How did you get them moving in a place as big as Post? Yeah, I loved my time at Australia Post. It's a very, very special company. And I, I joined in 2012. Um, and I joined at a point in time when the story is kind of well known. The traditional letters business was in structural decline. It needed to be able to reinvent itself and to have new lines of business that helped to support its ability to commercially support itself. The strategy that was charted at the time as part of Future Ready by Ahmed Fahua was to go and then build the e-commerce business, which is now synonymous really with that brand today and what it does. And, and over time, we, we built multiple billions of dollars of value into that company by attaching that company to e-commerce and to the change that was being progressed in the digital age. And, and that has kind of served the company well. The humble, very humble beginnings though, in the beginning you, you, you're looking at a very traditional business that worked a certain way to then introduce the concept of you know, digitization and technology transformation and technology enablement more to some of the later concepts around customer-led design, lean delivery techniques, corporate innovation, product market fit and all the things that we introduced at the later point in time, you know, all those things became possible because there was this wonderful appetite in the executive to want to genuinely chart a future for that company, but it, it knew that it had to do things new. It had to do things it hadn't done before. And in order to give it potential to be able to create a commercial future for itself, it didn't have. And so the notion of innovation and creativity and having a workforce that deeply understood its customers' problems and then drove its change was then possible. So incubating businesses like Digital ID and then some Trust Check were entirely possible. It leveraged a number of the capabilities that had been built in the organization kind of over the several years prior and gave an ability to be able to get new things into market in an accelerated timeframe. So um, to be able to pick people out of the company to become internal entrepreneurs um, and to give them a chance to be able to create really an internal startup, which is really what they went and did, was a very exciting time to be able to help you know, create permission for inside mm. of the organization. Some of those techniques were very early for you. You've started to see adopted at many corporates around the globe now, this idea of entrepreneurship, of finding the internal champions for change and, and allowing that entrepreneurship to take root. What were your big key learnings? Were there three things you, t you take away from those many years that you loved, were proud of, the big things you learned. Yeah, well, hindsight's a beautiful thing. <laughs> I think some of the things that I continue to be appreciative of, and one is just the, the power of people. And gone are the days where, where we manage you know, a group of people for their productive efficiency. We now manage them and really encourage them and give them a platform for their creative capacity. It's about igniting the ideas that our people have and when they deeply understand our organisational problem, our customer's problem, their ability to be able to bring ideas to bear that make a substantial difference is really what makes such a difference. So the learning was about tapping into that early making sure that's aligned with a corporate strategy to give good rails for the creative capacity in the workforce so that very early on, you know, whilst innovation you might want to be encouraging inside of the organisation, I am a believer it needs to be set within defined rails to give it an ability to come to life properly and be successful. 
the importance of measures, KPIs, ensuring that you know that there's some shared value that's associated with that measurement is incredibly important. And it's really important for journey alignment. When you're driving a change in an organization, when you're wanting to bring to life an innovation culture, there's a whole part of the organization that's not measured that way, that's not, not driven that way. And, and what you have to do is really to be successful at scale, you have to bring a whole organization along on that journey. And so finding a way to express those new things in traditional ways and, and to deliberately make sure that you bring an organization along on the journey, I found has been the thing that's incredibly important because what never works is, is experiments on the side. You have to build something to change the mainstream culture of a company. And so starting that early is incredibly important. And probably the only other thing that I found to be pretty profound, I think, was, was very early on build a leadership immersion so that leaders can start to understand what great looks like and they can actually experience it. So you're sure you can stand up with your strategy decks, you, you can you know, go and articulate what the future needs to be, but it needs to be felt. It needs to be felt by the leaders, it needs to be seen and that reference point is so important to then accelerate what a company can achieve and I don't know that many organisations invest enough in that but I saw that when an organisation does it absolutely drives a step change in its performance. And again thinking about that time was there anything you would have done differently? Any big learnings that you had a chance to step back you might have changed? Hard to ask because you're learning so fast in these environments. Um, Look, I, I think for the point in time as Australia Post was evolving, it, it had to go through certain steps in the right sequence of what was appropriate for that organisation at yeah. the time. Uh, I think now that I've joined another organisation <laughs> in Latitude Financial Services, the thing that's different this time round is being able to perhaps accelerate implementation of a number of things to now do them simultaneously. So whereas previously it might have been serialised a little, you know, we do something, we learn from it, then we do something next, we learn from it, and that process plays out over time. There's now, uh, with the right people and complement of experience and capability and ability to dramatically accelerate that. Mm. And so in this organisation at Latitude, that's exactly what's being done. We're starting with same notion, great strategy to drive a step change in what our customer and merchant experience needs to be in future. But the ability to bring to life an internal culture of creativity and innovation and using that as a basis to go and build the type of digital experiences we want for consumers and merchants and for that to then be a basis of how we evolve deliberately the products that we have, the features that they have and how the creativity of our people can bring to bear a differentiated experience, then that is something that is being accelerated inside of this company and certainly the timeframes that we're running to are... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, ambitious, but to date what we've done is we've met them right, mm. in terms of what we've gone and done. So is Latitude becoming or is it already a fintech? Interesting. I mean, Latitude has been an organisation that's gone through many different titles over time. I think some of its origins date back into the 1920s, 1930s. Right. So I don't know, even the concept of a fintech <laughs> existed way back then in some of its former incarnation. If you define a fintech as an organisation that creates its customer engagement and corporate prosperity because of technology, then absolutely, this is a direction that is very much a part of Latitude's future. But the thing that's different about what we're trying to do is not just technology for technology's sake. 
it must be applied in a meaningful, impactful way. It's got to make a difference to our consumer customers. It's got to make a difference to our merchant customers and the type of progressive technology that we're implementing here, certainly in this industry sector, will prove itself over time. And we'll be no doubt sharing more about that as we build it, establish it, and we're, we're happy to share as we kind of go forward. So look, in that regard, yes. I believe that we can say that. I don't know that's exactly as we will define ourselves. We want to be more centred around our customers and the value that exists for them, but we'll certainly be an organisation that's powered by great technology. It's a fairly new for you in financial services. I'm sure you've touched it in your career in many different ways, but back into the, the hood, so to speak. Interesting time for the industry. The Royal Commission's obviously shone a light on a, a lot of things that require change. And I'm sure that has constricted in some ways the risk appetite of the industry broadly. I'd love your thoughts on coming in at this moment with the challenges that are, that are facing the industry to reinvent itself, as you say, with the customer at the center and, and with that firmly in view that everything happens for the good of the customer. How does that play out in how you're taking this company forward? Yeah, no, I definitely, my career hasn't charted its path through financial services over time. As I come to this industry, I certainly have an understanding of it because I had run the financial services business at Australia Post. So I understand it, it, you know, it's important. So I understand how you've got to run you know, an appropriate business that is trusting the fact that customers are trusting you with some of their most important assets, right? And in latitude sense, and if I just think about the industry, yeah, look, the, the industry having and the results of the Royal Commission are really important for the industry to stop, listen, implement, change, and to make sure are then adopted. At Latitude, you know, we, we take these things incredibly seriously with our aspiration to become a digital organisation in every aspect of that, those things are centred around customers in terms of design and it only works when customers are advocating. So it's not necessarily about the product you create, you try and push onto a customer, it's the product that you design that a customer wants and needs and advocates for. And so for our shift in terms of how we design, how we go to market and the products that we have, that certainly guides us. And then because of our scale, and because we have been around for a while, you know, internal systems, processes, things that we need to do and how we manage risk and all those things need to be appropriately mature, to be respectful of the portfolios that we're lucky enough to be able to have an opportunity to look after. And so we have work to do, but we certainly plan on providing an example of how a financial services organisation can work in the coming decade and how, <laughs> how that could in fact be. In and amongst the career conversations we've been having, I, I love to ask this question, which is, what's your favourite kill? Because <laughs> I think, as you know, as we've talked about a lot, it's what you take forward that changes the future, but it's also your, your courage and, and being able to know when to stop that really helps set up an innovation function for longevity and belief and trust from, from the shareholders who are investing in you. Have you got one? Have you got something that you, that you can remember that you... You know, you probably loved, we get attached to our babies, but that you had to put the bullet in? Yes, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why I was kind of thinking about this as your favourite kill. I don't know. I wouldn't certainly describe it as something. It was a very painful process of letting go. The fingernails right, down the back actually of get the, to a point yeah. of making a call. But yeah, look, we, we, we started a piece of work in a post which was based around the concept that when you perform transactions, you leave a digital footprint. 
And out of that digital footprint, could we use that to help support how somebody identifies themselves and becomes more aware of kind of the type of footprint that they leave? And could we use that to be able to proactively help customers, right, to Great become idea. more aware? Mm, and so, yeah, well, we thought it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we went through desirability. It kind of, you know, proved itself really well with customer research. We had a small team that were working on it. So a small set of entrepreneurs that were just, they were the most brilliant team working away. We got to the end of desirability. It was sensational, right? The customers just loved the idea that they could understand what type of footprint they were leaving, have an ability to be able to then go and deal with it. When we got into uh, feasibility and viability, you know, we just got to a point that we hit roadblocks. You know, the ability to get the data to be able to facilitate the type of footprint analysis that we really felt matched the desirability, we just couldn't get to. Data was locked up in some of the big, large providers, I won't say who. <laughs> and as a result, we just couldn't complete the things that were needed to be able to get this idea off the ground. So we had these really excited customers. We just couldn't prove an ability to be able to take that forward in any way that we could produce a product that was meaningful. And it was an exceptionally painful process to get to a point where we said, stop. Mm. We just will not proceed. And the startup team that we had running it, they got to a point where they made that assessment themselves and made that recommendation. And the thing that I loved and really valued in them was the fact that they actually told that story to the organization. And it was one of the first most overtly discussed stop programs that um, the organization had gone through and set a really important tone that we are prepared to stop things if they're not going to proceed. One of our previous guests on this podcast, David Thode, had a recent Man in Clark lecture where he really called out something that you and I talk about a lot, which is this urgent need for the, this, our whole economy, this country, all corporates to lift the bar on innovation, the focus on innovation, the investment innovation. Not easy, but we are, feel like we're falling behind. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing corporates today, stopping them or impeding innovation or stopping them from succeeding innovation? I certainly agree that as an Australian economy, we've got to be doing more with encouraging an environment for our organisations to be able to bring this creative capacity to bear. We can call it innovation, we can call it whatever we want to be able to do, but we have to solve for problems and solve for them, certainly for our local businesses, but do so in a way that solves for it on a global scale. Through that process, we could potentially change Australia's prosperity as we go through that. In terms of the things that block organizations, some of it's the very traditional things. Organizations who are listed have to meet their quarterly and half yearly numbers. As a result, the notion of making a decision that would help a, an incubation of an idea that needs to span across one, two, three, four years is something that is considered high risk. CEOs need a greater guarantee Right, and you know, I think one of the stats, I might not get the exact numbers right, was you know, CEOs were asked, well, if you had the option of investing in an innovation that will come off in several years but will come off big or missing your quarterly numbers, what would you do? So 80% said, oh, there's no way I'd miss my quarterly numbers. And I think that kind of summarizes the notion of the challenge that we've got. Immediate term performance, um, certainly has to be met, and I, and I certainly don't debate that that needs to be true. But we have to be better from both boards and executive teams with providing an environment that acknowledges that unless you start creating for something in the midterm, you're simply not 
going to help your organizations to create the types of futures that they need to have. You know, we have a wealth of educated people in this country. We should be doing fundamentally better in terms of punching above our weight with our ability to be able to create great ideas that we can then take to the world, but that is just not true. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the challenge is in creating environments in organization that gives permission for um, ideas, learning, failure, to be able to exist. Yeah, I think that you've just started to speak to one of my passions in this space, which is the leadership required to hold the space for growth and innovation to occur. Can you talk about that a little bit and possibly leaders that you've worked with, how you lead to hold that space, that space of being ambidextrous as a leader, someone who's able to really focus on delivering the core in front of you and what's needed for this quarter, but balanced equally with this ability to search, explore, and ultimately scale the future and hold those two in tension? Hmm. I, I think I've been lucky in my career. I've been able to work for leaders and to observe leaders who are change leaders. In watching them, what they've done really well is in a way having a foot in today and a foot in tomorrow. And with that foot in today, there is wonderful discipline with how the business is run to ensure it provides this wonderful platform on which the organization can deliver on its the types of performance that it needs, but builds a strategy that in balance has a foot in tomorrow and acknowledges that unless we invest in creating new products, new markets, new industries that could then exist to then create a potential future for an organization, you know, the whole notion of that foot in today will start sliding. I think the things that those leaders have done is, is build the notion of either a burning platform for change and the reason why this needs to be true. Um, and sometimes if that platform's fixed, then maybe it's this unwavering aspiration that the only way to continue to drive growth is by investing in a part of the organization to assure that it helps to create what that second and third horizon of new activity is going to be that's going to help to bring through those future products and that, those commercial results really for an organization. And so those things um, probably are the things that I've seen that have helped to create the environment the best. Those leaders have believed in it, heart and soul, and they help an organization to believe in it, heart and soul, as well as a board. And it's an aligned commitment that what that then gets done, that in actioning and working this way is the only way that you really should work. Moving on now to strategy. We, you mentioned before innovation works best within some guardrails, some focal areas, a strategy, if you will, or even a thesis, sometimes we call it. We have a point of view about how, how to build those and keep those lean enough that there's room to breathe, but sharp enough that the innovation teams, the entrepreneurs know where and how they can move forward. I'd love any more insights you can add around the building of an innovation or a growth strategy and how it's worked for you. Innovation timeframes often work to longer timeframes than are needed to deal with structural issues in your core financials. And so as a result, you need to build a strategy that builds waves of change in a way. Yes, have a part of that that's deliberately investing in what you would call you know, deliberate innovations that are a step change of capability that's really trying to take the organization to go and do something different and work fundamentally differently. But acknowledge that that time horizon might be two, three, four, five years right, within which it starts to materialize. Things start to materialize early, 
but you've got to grow scale in it. And growing scale in it is then the thing that then takes time. Building a growth strategy can be a little bit different. It is possible to build an organic growth strategy by going back and trying to changing how an organization listens to its customers, listens to what makes a difference about its customers, and then influence its product design based upon that research that it goes and does. And so changing how an organization designs its products and therefore realizes those types of commercial outcomes, I think delivers very deliberately on an organic growth strategy. And there are things that can certainly be done that can build that, improve how that's done digitally, whilst also bringing online an innovation portfolio that's very provocative then around some deliberate seed investments that creates a next step change for businesses that might take a longer time horizon to come online. Let's then um, think about growth governance and innovation governance and how that might vary from classic governance in an organisation. We've all turned up to our executive with our core plans, our business performance reviews, reporting in on obviously our revenues, our profits, our customer numbers and the risks associated with delivering the, the annual plan. When you're governing new early stage growth and incubation work, how is it different? How should it be different? And how do you level up your governance group, your executive team, even your board to be excellent at governing new forms of innovation and growth? Yeah, I think organisations that are starting to chart their path to work out how to do this kind of struggle a bit in their early days because they, they try and apply a one-size-fits-all approach to how they want to go about it. And that one-size-fits-all approach, they've learned out of their mature business. And in their mature business, you know, they can probably forecast within 2 to 4% performance for the quarter. And generally, that kind of works, being a barring un un any unforeseen market condition. But when you start to push into an innovation portfolio, the notion when there's not a product in market yet and measuring it on those same metrics just doesn't work. So the traditional metrics actually don't apply. What I've seen work well is organisations that are very deliberate about their portfolio of, invest of investments. Uh, and there's different methodologies and frameworks around us. I've seen a really good one called the Zone to Win framework. Uh, and that zone to win framework very deliberately enables a portfolio of investments across innovation, transformation, productivity, and performance-based investments. And when you look behind what each one is, it basically says, well, what you should do is devote not only a percentage of your investment capital, your investment OPEX into each of these particular zones, but you should also govern, measure, and report on these zones in very different ways. So if you're talking about innovation, what you should be looking at in the innovation portfolio is what have we done in terms of desirability? Do our customers really like what it is that this core offer then is starting to introduce? What's the basis of the measures for viability and feasibility? When we start to seed it in the market, are we starting to get the, the customer uptake numbers? Is the advocacy right? Are those, are those basic settings are starting to create a sound product starting to work? Right, and that's very different to something that then sits in kind of the performance zone or the productivity zone is, well, we have these things working, right? What can we do that implements an efficiency that helps us to drive, you know, greater margin improvement in terms of how our products are working, but we already know what the top line revenue is going to do, so we can kind of predict that and so on. So what I've seen organizations do and what I've been a part of applying is different frameworks that help organizations to ensure that they measure these different zones 
and govern them in different ways. And when you do it that way, it then creates an environment where the different types of investments can be more successful. And certainly, if you apply a one-size-fits-all approach, you're destined to fail. How important are partnerships? In, in this space of innovation, I remember seeing a research survey from um, AT Carney a few years back that said, particularly in Australia, we tend to be, we don't think about partnerships when we're innovating. We tend to try and do it ourselves, whereas other economies, particularly Britain, we're almost three times more likely to look for partnerships in innovation than to go it alone. Love your perspective on that um, and what's worked for you and where you look to partner to innovate and grow. It's a really good question because I haven't seen too many examples locally where partnerships have been done well. You know, happy to be proven wrong. <laughs> I think partnerships are talked about as more of an aspiration than they're actually executed. But in looking when, you know, if I go back to the, you know, if you think about this in the corporate innovation context, when you start a process on desirability, you, you want to prove a great customer value proposition. You might find a brilliant customer value proposition that customers love. But the organization and its capabilities that you're working for can only solve for 50% of that customer value proposition that you found. In that scenario, do you partner or do you build it yourself? Because you know, in that particular scenario, you've acknowledged, you know, well, it's kind of something we haven't done before. Uh, we've been an organization that's always built it, so maybe we should do that again. And I think there are these pivot points at that, for organizations at that point in time. Learning to partner learning how to create uh, fair and equitable deals that uh, might acknowledge the capability, ideas, and intellectual property. Sharing IP, that right, tiny little partner. pain point. Yeah. And that is, that is even more painful when you're a really large organization working with a startup. And learning how to partner actually could accelerate both companies' outcomes. But think about it. If you're, if you're a startup, you're, you're not mature. You don't really know what it's like to go deal with a, a large corporation that's exceptionally good and with their legal and commercial agreements, they've actually employed a small group of people or an army of people that are capable of just focusing on intellectual property, let alone all the other commercial terms that are then appropriate. And large corporates often overwhelm startups. But the potential for the two, the union between the two, um, I think is one of the things that could be most exciting. But I think the corporate has to give way. Right? It has to give way on things that it wouldn't have traditionally done when it dealt with someone else of its size. But, so in that scenario, I guess I can certainly see examples where partnership is needed. In my practical experience of all the partnerships that I have very deliberately tried to work on creating, <laughs> practically I found it really hard to be able to get an organization to come to bear and let go and acknowledge that they might actually share intellectual property, they might actually share commercial results in something that they're able to create with others. But I absolutely believe that uh, the potential of that is true. Last one, congratulations. Latitude just launched their first new product category, I believe, in for about eight years since when That's those right. came out, which is super exciting. But I would understand, knowing you, that that's just the very beginning. It'll be the beginning of a journey of making that product beautiful, not the end. Tell us a little bit about it and where to from here. Yeah, so it's an exciting step for us. So we've just launched Latitude Pay. Latitude Pay is a solution for merchants and consumers who are wanting to be able to provide an offer to help customers to shop for things that they might want to pay off over 10 instalments. Um, we've now released that in a market. It's been something that we've brought to life over the last few months. 
and the minimum viable product is out there now and it's something that we're certainly beginning that process of testing. The thing that's interesting has been how you can take an idea like this that was certainly part of our deliberate strategy, bring that to market in a time frame that could teach an organisation that it can drive pervasive change and it can do that quickly and it can do something that really looks to go and nurture its customers and its merchants and some of the relationships this organisation has. And from our perspective, it's a very deliberate part of our strategy to uh, begin with an offer like this and it's something that we're going to then deliberately grow over time. So you just have to watch this space <laughs> with how that evolves from here. Fantastic. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Value your incredible insights, your depth of experience. Congratulations on what you've already achieved and thanks so much for your time. Thank you, John. It's great to spend some time with you. That's it for this episode of The Corporate Innovator. As always, thanks for listening. And if you're loving the episodes, be sure to tell your friends or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions or guest ideas for the show, you can email me at hi at ie.com.au. See you next time.